Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Penguin Podcast. I'm Richard E. Grant and this episode I'm joined by a comedian who has established himself as one of Britain's best comedy writers and performers, renowned for his razor-sharp wordplay. He, of course, is John Finnamore. John, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming down on the Northern Lights so diligently. <laughs> John, I saw a tweet from you recently that said, Today, my job involves a helicopter and then later an owl. Eight-year-old me nods with quiet approval. <laughs> this is precisely what he expected. Has life generally panned out as your eight-year-old self expected? <laughs> that was an unusual day for me, and uh, my eight-year-old self would perhaps be disappointed to know that most of my days involve a computer and perhaps a notebook rather than an owl on a helicopter. But having said that, yes, perhaps far more than I could ever have had the right to expect, I do get to spend a lot of time messing around and having fun and trying to make people laugh with gangs of my friends in a way that uh, is certainly what I was doing when I was eight and what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, yes. <laughs> In this podcast, we'll be hearing a selection of highlights of your work, but I wanted to start with probably your best-loved character, Arthur Shappy, the 29-year-old airline steward for MJN Air from your smash hit radio sitcom Cabin Pressure. Here you are as Arthur, trying to learn the NATO phonetic alphabet. Carolyn, played by Stephanie Cole, gives him a spot check. Martin, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, despairs. B. Oh, big bag, bog, bob, bush, ball, bag, bug, bag... Bag, bag. It is not bag. <laughs> Two syllables. Balloon, baboon, bassoon, bubble, babble, bag, bag, bag. Fact that! No, it's something you say at the end of a play. Bye bye. No! <laughs> what do you say to the actors? Boo! No! <laughs> like encore. Boncore! <laughs> Bravo! Oh, yes, I knew that. <laughs> you really, really didn't. Another! John, for the four people in the UK who haven't listened to Cabin Pressure, can you give us the setup for anyone who is ignorant? Yes, it is a sitcom about a tiny airline, so tiny that it consists only of one aircraft and two pilots. It's run by Carolyn, who got the aircraft in a divorce settlement from her husband and is now trying to run it as a tiny charter airline or is on the verge of bankruptcy with the two pilots that she could afford, uh, one of whom has always wanted to be a pilot but is fundamentally not terribly good at it and the other of whom is terribly good at it but got fired from an enormous airline for some sort of suspicious. Uh, we never quite find out what he did. And uh, Arthur is Carolyn's son, who you just heard, and uh, he provides stewarding and general enthusiasm and idiocy. John, as with all our guests at the Penguin Studio, you've brought along a number of objects that have inspired you in your career so far. And the first looks like it might just have had something to do with cabin pressure. What have you brought in, please? Yes, well... Can you describe it? Absolutely. Well, this belongs to my father, or belonged to him, and it is his hat. It's the hat he wore to work because he was a pilot for British Airways. I think this would have been when he was a first officer, although the braid and wings have been taken off so that uh, no-one can <laughs> pinch it from me and sneak into Heathrow pretending to be a pilot. Could you but put the hat on? Uh, by always. It won't quite fit me, but... I have a larger head for my father, as he's delighted to point out. Uh, <laughs> there we are. So, yes, that was the uniform cap, and that's what he would wear to work every day. Did you ever have ambitions yourself to become a pilot? I thought about it. I don't think... I never really had a strong ambition, but it was exciting what he did, and I loved that we got to travel a lot with him, and he loved it as well. So I did think about it. I think, in the end, 
it was the boredom that I couldn't take. And this is where a lot of the comedy and indeed the plots for Cabin Pressure come from, is that it's intelligent people trapped in a cupboard with each other for six hours or 12 hours with really very little to do. So does your father have funny stories about being in this, stuck in this oh, cupboard in the Lord, air? Yes. <laughs> oh, yes, I there's something about... It's one of those professions that, uh, yeah, it seems to attract raconteurs. And, uh, and yet there was never a carry-on pilot film. That's old, isn't it? Carry-on nursing, but yeah. never a carry-on pilot. Yes. I'm, I'm, and Did you do you that? Know, Carry-ons, I sort of admire them, but they never really got to me. They just didn't take. They don't really make me laugh. So if you've dismissed uh, the carry-on films as not being any influence on you at all, what was the comedy that you oh, um, loved as a child? It was Victoria Wood, Fry and Laurie, mm-hmm. Python, um, Morecambe and Wise, uh, but also then the, the comedy that I started... Actually, comedy that my father introduced me to that was sort of from his era, which I loved, you know, The Goons and I'm Sorry I Read That Again and things like that, and then stuff that I... You know, there's always something special about the things that you discover that no-one has brought to you. So for me, it was the day-to-day that came on when I was a young teen in the 90s, the new satire with uh, Chris Morris and Armando Inucci and, and their whole gang swam in to my can, as it were, as something, oh, God, you can do that with your life. What an amazing thing. <laughs> well, following your huge success with Cabin Pressure, in 2011, you launched a new sketch show, John Finnemore's Souvenir Programme. Mm. Let's hear a clip from this now. Hello, hello, uh, Mrs Shaw. Yes, hello. Oh, you must be the management consultant. Mm-hmm. Yes, we have that honour, yes. As our letter said, we are giving back to the community by giving our services... For free. Absolutely well. free and for gratis for instant blitz sessions with small business owners like yourself who could never normally dream of dreaming of being able to afford us. Lovely. It is lovely mm. and it's lovely of us to do it. <laughs> so, uh, what do you do here? Well, well actually, uh, it's all right. I've got it all down here. Let me see. Yes. Uh, oh, uh, she sells seashells by the seashore. <laughs> you sell seashells? By the seashore. Sammy, do you see the systemic flaw? Sure thing, CJ. I see it for sure. You shouldn't sell seashells by the seashore. You should sell seashells further inshore. Me? Sell seashells further inshore? Sure. Sell seashells way, way inshore. You see, seashells are free shells on the seashore. Yeah. Who, who needs seashells? bought from a store when we can all see free shells all over the shore. But if you sell seashells further inshore, the seashells you sell will sell for much more. Mm. Yeah, it's called scarcity value, you see. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been a pleasure to transform your life. We'll be on our way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right, right OK. Uh, thanks. Uh, j- just one thing, though. Uh, what about added value? What? How do you mean? Well, you see, every sunrise I search the seashore to seek out the best shells washed up night before. So when you seek seashells later, therefore, you'll only see shells of a standard that's poor. If you seek to please a seashell connoisseur, you'll need the seashells that I sell in my store. Oh, right, yeah. Mm, yeah. Uh, but even so, our, our point still stands. I mean, even if you're getting the best shells, they'll still sell even better in shore where there's no competition. Right, but these shells that I sell here in my store, I sell as souvenirs of the seashore. Here by the seashore, shells are a draw, but inshore, seashells lose their allure. When you buy seashells, if ever, I'm sure you buy seashells by the seashore. Yeah, that is true. The only time I would ever even consider buying a shell is at the beach. Yeah, huh. I'm sorry, madam, um, there seems to be a slight chance that for the first time in the entire history of management consultancy, (laughs) we may have swooped in with no knowledge or understanding of your business, suggested some terrible half-baked changes out of blind ignorance and totally wasted your time. It's all right, you can't help it. Here, have a pickled pepper before you go. My husband picks them himself. (laughs) 
That was a sketch performed by you, Carrie Quinlan, and Simon Kane from the most recent fifth series of John Finnemore's Souvenir Programme. How much rehearsing goes into a sketch like that? Poor old Carrie was given that, you know, I, I write up to deadlines, and so she'd seen a version of that before, but she certainly hadn't seen that until the morning of the day that we were going to do it live in front of an audience, and uh, just sort of gave her that and said, do you mind just doing a um, page of, of <laughs> complicated <laughs> tongue twisters you've never seen before? Do you do that, yeah, do that in one yeah, take? This, yeah. Yeah, she's, oh, she's absolutely marvellous. What a pro. Um, Why did you decide to write a sketch show rather than another sitcom? Um, I'd always loved sketch shows. I think there's, there's something particular about being able to reset every two or three minutes. And there's something also about a gang show. I love the, you know, I get to do it with my friends. And on radio in particular, it's just the five of us on a bare stage with a mic and an audience. And I really love doing it. The sketch we just heard demonstrates your love of words, but your next object indicates it doesn't always come easy to you, does it? No, it never comes easily to me, almost never. And it appears that it never has, because what I have here is an exercise book from preschool, really, or possibly nursery school. I think I would have been about five or six and learning to write. And we were told to write a sentence every day and draw a picture above it. Could you pass it to me to have a look? And uh, you see, I've uh, I framed this page and I had this hanging in my office because it does seem to me to (laughs) encapsulate my whole attitude to my work. I don't know what to write today, although I think... I don't know what to write today, although I think and think... Oh, all right. And I think, a picture of uh, uh, you with ideas uh, coming exactly. out of your head. Well, you'd say that, but what, what what's actually there's there's certainly thought bubbles arising from the little stick figure sitting at his desk with his pencil in his hand, but they are entirely empty. It's just a blank thought bubble. Yeah, um, and your teacher's given you a little star. I think. Yeah, I know. Um, either because some, maybe she has some sort of fellow feeling, or maybe it's just because I spelt all though correctly. <laughs> oh. Did you have a single teacher that inspired or believed in you? I wouldn't say single one, no. There are many who, you see, now I'm just thinking of a roll call in case they listen to this. <laughs> uh, Mr Powell and so on. But, they choke um, in the old age. Right? Exactly. But no, there was never a uh, you know Hector from the History Boys, exactly. Uh, well, uh, you yeah. didn't have that. <laughs> You're very precise with words and characters. Is that a result of many drafts? Yeah, many drafts. It's all about the rewriting. And it seems to me that the comedy writers in particular seem to tend to be either people who are funniest at the moment where they think of the idea and then almost have to try to recapture why they were so funny when they were spontaneously inspired by it. So I write sometimes with um, David Mitchell and he's absolutely like that, which is why he's so good on panel shows and things like that because when the idea hits him, when he's angry about something, he's just able to effortlessly make it sound as if he's you know written this and redrafted it and redrafted it he just it just comes, comes out, out fully funny. formed yes and then i know sometimes he he has described to me having trouble trying to refine that when he's writing up an article say whereas with me it's absolutely the opposite i have to generate something that i absolutely you know i have to force myself to generate a first draft that i hate and then come back to it and go well i can't make this good but i can suppose i can make it not actually embarrassing and then come back the next day and go well i suppose i can make this just fine average and then yeah, gradually and incrementally and uh, with enormous pain and procrastination. And work oh, you're avoidance. a procrastinator. So you'll <gasps> do everything Lord. not to write. Yes, well, no, absolutely, yeah. So what do you do oh. to avoid it? Oh, it's, I mean, emails? it's heartbreaking, the things I will do to avoid writing. I mean, I've caught myself the other day, I'd rolled up 
a little piece of foil into a ball and I was bouncing it off the wall and trying to hit it with my head as it bounced back. And that's what I was doing rather than... It wasn't like I was off reading a book or going for a walk or having an adventure or watching TV, any of which would either be pleasurable or could possibly even be useful later on because you can never tell when something's going to... A book you read is going to come up and surprise you and be useful later on. No, I'll just sit there answering emails that absolutely do not need to generating emails really making making admin for myself it's heartbreaking anything not to write (laughs) yeah i have to take all of the little games that come with the computer off the computer realizing you've spent 40 minutes playing solitaire a game with absolutely no skill a game the computer could play against itself a game i do not enjoy but i've been playing that for 40 minutes rather than writing it's still better than writing but there's a precision to your plots and you know an incredible structure so this obviously it's like pulling teeth out of you to get that. Plot in particular. Plot is an absolute bastard, yes. And uh, the hardest thing about it, I think, which is, well, I suppose another reason I really enjoy sketch shows, because you don't need plot. Have to do with the plot. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> the plot is really hard to do, and I certainly think as as a consumer of stories, a reader and a watcher and listener to comedy, it's all about the plot. And, there's, you know, you can enjoy the journey, but it's only when the plot works that you really are taken out of yourself and think, no, this is something I love. Um, so I do work very hard on the plot. And when you write for people like uh, Mitchell and Webb, is it a very different approach writing to a commission rather than for yourself? Not in that particular case, because I think our senses of humour are so similar that, they, I mean, I wrote for Mitchell and Webb's sketch show before I wrote my own, but the sort of sketches I was writing are, are exactly the same. Uh, so in the very early days when I was writing, you know, for any show that had an open door policy, you know, radio sketch shows that hadn't made me laugh, but I was going, OK, how would they write the sketch about this idea? And then, quite rightly, not getting many on, because that you can sense when a writer is doing that. And I think there are even sitcoms that go out where you think, I don't believe the writer wants to watch this show I think they are writing perhaps on the orders of an exec or you know layers and layers of notes and all the it may not be their fault but I think what's happened here is some people are making a show that they don't themselves want to watch because they think other people they're writing for another audience who they don't whose sense of humor they don't share I think that's disastrous I don't think you can be funny that way well from sitcoms and sketch shows to drama and your most recent series double acts six comedy two-handers let's have a listen to the episode called red-handed in which the character Joel returns home to hear noises from his kitchen is there someone in my house? Uh, yes, there is. Hello. <laughs> oh, sorry to startle you. Probably inevitable in the circumstances, but still. What? What? It was tricky to know what to do for the best, you know, say hello straight away or, or, or wait till you saw me. <laughs> Who are you? Henry, hello. Henry? Well, what do you mean, Henry? I don't know how else to put it, really. Um, you asked who I was. I am Henry. Hello. I didn't mean what's your name. Oh, I'm sorry. Still, Henry is what it is. <laughs> hello. I don't... Uh, yours? I... What? Joel, but... Please meet you, Joel. Well, obviously not that pleased, but uh, hello nonetheless. What are you doing in my kitchen? Ah, yes, well, <clears throat> that's the question, isn't it? What are you doing here? Well, now, I'm tempted to say I've made a mistake, that I thought it was my house. Well, how did you get in? Well, exactly. It doesn't stand up at all, does it? Similarly with gas meter readers, telephone engineers, etc. None of them get into the house by themselves, do they? And in any case, um, any minute now, you'll notice... Is that my... What are you doing with my suitcase? There we are, you see. What have you put in... That's my stuff! What the hell are you doing with my stuff? Well? Oh, you want an answer? Of course I do! I do apologise. I assumed your questions had become rhetorical. Well, I'm taking it. Taking it? Yes. Taking it where? Away. Why? Because I want it. What for? Because it looks valuable. But... 
It's not yours. Not yet, but it's a wicked old world. I don't understand. So I see. <laughs> Which is odd, because it is a fairly simple idea. Well, you were bailiff or something? A bailiff? No. Uh, something, yes. Well, you're not a burglar. Aren't I? Are you? Yes, I am. You are? I am. A burglar? Yes, I am a burglar. I really don't know how to make it any clearer. This is a burglary. You have been burgled. I did the burgling, ergo, I am a burglar. You're a burglar? By George, I think he's got it. We heard Laurie Lewin as Joel and John Bird as Henry from the Double Acts episode Red Handed. And that series is available to download now and on CD later in the year. John, for, for someone who professes to hate writing, yes. you seem to be doing incredibly well. I mean, is it hard to constantly come up with new material? Yes, it is hard, as I have whinged on about at some length already. I suppose I should make clear that what I mean is I hate or at least I find very difficult, which is slightly different from hating, yeah. the process of writing, the day-to-day job of it, the I-don't-know-what-to-write-today-although-I-think-and-think part of writing, which is, it seems to me the major part of the job. I love being a writer. I'm absolutely delighted with my job and that this is what I get to do, and I'm proud of most of the stuff that I produce. So it's not that I want not to do this, it's simply that uh, uh, and how lucky would I be if I also found the day-to-day process of it a delight as well. No one no one loves doing their job, but yeah, I, I really enjoy writing. Is it true that you came up with one of the plots of Double Acts while on a long cycling holiday in Europe last year? Uh, all of them, yes. All of them? Um, not quite all, but most of them. So you uh, need to be on wheels? Certainly at that stage, at that sort of tender stage of coming up with something from nothing, I think it's useful to take yourself out of your friends and family and out of your normal routine and away from your phone and your computer and cycling is an excellent way to do that. Do you have a picture of your bike? Uh, this is it. Um, Shall we pretend it that your bicycle the... is here? Yes, by all means. Yes, yes. it was. Looks absolutely... Could you describe uh, let me it just, for uh, us? Let me just wheel in the noble steed. Here it is. Yes, get uh, onto the saddle, John. <laughs> no, this is it. So it's an unremarkable, just a, a touring bike. Oh, yeah, what I, I really enjoy cycling and I bought the bike in Belgrade and then I cycled all the way up the Danube through Serbia and Croatia. And then I got to Switzerland at the end of Danube and then I rode down the Rhine through Germany down to Holland, obviously, because that's where the Rhine goes. It really gave me much choice. Uh, so, yeah, I essentially cycled home from, from Belgrade. With uh, ideas sparked well, in every city that you went no, to? No, that's a... Yes, I mean... It's not like a catering wheel of inspiration. That's, I suppose, the point. It's what cycling is quite good for. And the other trick I do is long train trips... You sit down and you think you're going to come up with the whole idea all at once, and of course you're not, nothing works like that. Uh, cycling is great because I get up in the morning and I'd have an hour before the hotel would chuck me out and I'd do a little bit of thinking then, and then I'd be gently thinking while I was cycling, but I'd also be listening to audiobooks or just watching the scenery go by. I Multitasking. Do, absolutely. But things would be percolating away, and then I'd do an hour at lunch and then an hour or two when I finished. And that's all. That feels like not very much. That's, what, four hours at most and probably many days, only two or three hours hours actual work on this which feels like um, tremendously slow rate of progress but actually if you cannot do that every day and if you do it you know if you are actually thinking and working for those two hours then that's almost more productive than sitting down diligently at your desk to an eight, for an eight-hour day and then bouncing a tinfoil ball off your head. It sounds like the life of Riley with a huge yeah. dose of anxiety. Oh, anxiety, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. what about the old inspiration versus perspiration question? Is your work 99% graft? 
Yes, it is. 99 is almost about right, maybe 95. There are moments where something starts to flow and those are wonderful, but you can't wait for them. You can't make a living as a writer if you wait to feel in the mood. And I also think they maybe wouldn't come if you hadn't spent the past four days in what felt to you like an unrewarding way, but which nonetheless meant that you were thinking about it and pushed you a little further towards it. And then, and certainly if you haven't spent all the time on the plot and grafting at the plot, which of course isn't a funny process, it's just trying to work out a, you know, like a crossword puzzle, a three-dimensional crossword puzzle in in Swedish. Uh, But... Then if you've got that, if you know before you start writing the dialogue why each scene is funny and what each character tends to get out of it and how the callback that you've planted in the second scene is going to come back and surprise them here, then the actual writing of the dialogue in that scene, that's when you can really enjoy yourself because you know what you're doing already. OK, let's hear another clip from Double Act. In this episode called Wissenwig, is that mm-hmm. right? That's right. Wissenwig, Carrie played by Izzy Sutty has to explain herself to her new boss, Adele, played by Alison Stedman. And the other thing is, I'm afraid it looks like Joel took all this week's sales leads with him when he left, so obviously we can't collate them for the sales team, so I thought... Hang on, wait up. Whoa, 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 whoa. Sorry, you're telling me you're not going to be able to send sales any leads? Well, I'm not saying I can't, I'm saying... OK, Kerry, can I say something? Yes. I'm not interested in hearing your excuses, OK, or your explanations. Right, OK. I just want you to tell me why you can't do it. But without explaining... Without explanations, I said. It's two different things. Right, Well, when Joel left... Is this an explanation? No, it's just a list of connected facts. I'll be the judge of what's a fact. Okay. well, when Joel left... Yes, that is a fact, that Joel left. Good. Well, when he left, he took with him all the leads on file. I don't know if that's a fact or not. Okay. Um, I mean, it is a fact. I'll be the judge of that. Right. Right. I'm going to judge that it is. Good. So, we don't have any leads this week because Joel took them all with him. Is that an explanation? No. But I think it explains it. Well, listen, I'm going to let you off with a warning this time. Thank you very much. What's Jill want with our leads anyway? Now he's not even working here anymore. We heard Izzy Sutty playing Kerry and Alison Stedman playing Adele in that episode of Wiz and Wig from Double Acts. John, you have three critically acclaimed series all on the radio. Is TV around the corner? I mean, if it is, it's hiding itself behind that corner pretty well. It's pretty deeply in the shadows. Is it something uh, that you're avoiding or do you like to? No, I'm certainly not avoiding it. I'm neither avoiding it nor running after it, I suppose. I had a couple of projects, both sitcoms, and neither of them happened. And that's fine. That's the way of it. I was well paid. But to spend a year on something and, you know, devote as much time and effort and sweat into it and then for it not to happen is very painful. So... That's what puts me off television is the reasonable likelihood that it may never happen. Whereas with radio, it's hard to get something commissioned, but once it's commissioned, you know it's going out. And also you and your producer are more or less left alone to do it by yourselves. And then what I love about radio is the autonomy of it, that for any of the three shows, it's me, my producer and my cast working to produce exactly what 
what we intended to produce. Well, whenever you see shows, uh, retrospectives about the 60s or 70s, when people talk about you know the great golden age of television comedy, they always talk about the fact that they were left alone to do what they do. Yes. So it seems that radio is the last outpost often, of that. Often by, people, by execs who uh, didn't like what they were doing and yeah. didn't understand it. You know, there's a famous story Just about Monty Python being told, I, I, sorry, I don't find it funny at all, I, I don't understand it, you can only have 13. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you can go wrong by giving, especially writers and performers who maybe haven't had much experience, if you give them too much free reign, then they can be self-indulgent or they can make mistakes that certainly a good producer could have steered them away from. So I'm not saying, oh, writer is king and must always have everything his own way. I'm not saying that, but I am thinking it very loudly. (laughs) John, you seem to relish performing your work, and this leads us to your next object, a rather curious-looking thing. Mm, Yes, this is an object I realised on my way here that I don't even know the name for. I I know what I call it, but I don't know if that's its official name. So I'll describe it. It's it's on a pole. So there's a pole on a stand, and on top of the stand there is a wooden object about the size and shape of a large aubergine. And it's rather nicely sort of polished wood. And then the top uh, quarter of it is a green light. And, of course, this, as you know, what it's for is simply that the producer in the gallery turns it on to tell the actors to start speaking. It is the most... It's a traffic light. but um, A blinking dildo. Exactly. Well, quite. A haunted aubergine. But I love it. There's something about watching a radio recording where you do feel you're in on something, you're behind the scenes, you get to welcome Samantha onto the stage. Yeah. You know, things like that. You see the retakes. So it, your parents took you? Then my parents took me, certainly, and I also went myself. I would uh, cycle down to uh, Pool Arts Centre and uh, watch. And also live comedians. I saw, you know, Harry Hill and, and Paul Merton and uh, Roy Bremner and people like that. And how often did things go wrong during the recordings? Well, they go wrong a bit, but that's great normally. As long as you on stage make it clear to the audience that this is all fine and you're totally relaxed and confident about this, then it yeah. becomes a plus. They quite enjoy a fluff or a technical Absolutely. mistake. It makes them feel like they're in on something. But no, it, it's not. The nature of it is that things don't really get very seriously wrong. So you make a fluff and say so you do a retake or start the sketch again. But the whole business of, of performing is what I really like. And this, yeah, this uh, strange cue light is uh, just the sort of talisman of that. It's also, having talked about how hard I find the writing part of my job i love the performing part i really it's the most tremendous well it's both carrot and stick when i'm writing to think well if i make this good i will get to stand on stage and perform this With if i don't make this good i have to stand on stage and perform <laughs> this uh but yeah the day of the actual recording was yeah the thing i was i was most looking forward to although often i am absolutely knackered by then having missed seven deadlines and written the last sketch the night before but that's my fault and my problem Let's return to your souvenir programme and hear another sketch. Here you are with Simon Kane. I say, Thompson. Oh, Walker, how do you do? How do you do? Thompson, old man, I wanted a quiet word with you. Well, of course, nothing the matter. No, no, no. And, and look here, you must forgive me for sticking my nose into your business, but the fact is, some of the fellows were saying you were thinking of hiring on Ferguson for your firm. Well, yes, so I am. Should I not? Oh, no, I, I wouldn't say that, and doubtless you know all about it anyway. But I just thought it was my duty to give you a word to the wise. Uh, Ferguson is a capital fellow, but, shall we say, he gets very little change at the haberdashers. <laughs> I'm sorry, how do you mean? Well, I'm just saying, in his farmyard, all the geese are swans. <laughs> he has a farm? No, 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 not as far as I know. I'm speaking elusively, you understand. I don't understand. <laughs> well, I'm simply saying his penny whistle is not worth fourpence. <laughs> well, no, naturally not. <laughs> no, but it's not worth fourpence. Fourpence? 
Fourpence? Yes, fourpence. It's not worth fourpence. No, I'm sorry. Well, well, look, I'm trying to say there's no peg in his parlour for a petticoat. Oh, I see. He's a homosexual. What? No. Good Lord, no. I mean, is he? Not as far as I know. Well, no, no, then, no. I, I wasn't for a moment suggesting there was no bell on his bicycle. I... I simply meant he parts his hair in the middle. Oh, a bisexual. What? I don't even know what that is. No, I, no I, I, I'm saying he's the sort of chap who eats his porridge with two spoons. No, I'm sorry. There are more shells in his garden than there ever were snails. And again, there are ivory dice in his Westcott pocket. He's a gambler. No, not literal dice, for heaven's sake. If you must make me come out and say it, he's the sort of chap who, if your chimney was on fire, would lend you an umbrella. <laughs> So, so stupid. No! Unhelped. No! He's got a brass button on the back of his hat. His cherry tree only bears plums. He wouldn't thank you for a punch in the side of the head. Well, no more would I. Oh. Oh, I see. Uh, oh. Well, then, by all means, employ him. Birds of a feather must flock together, eh? No, I, I just mean I wouldn't thank you for a punch in the side of the head. Yes, yes, I heard you. I, don't worry, old man, I'm not prejudiced. Live and let live, that's my motto. But... <laughs> then, of course, I would say that. After all, just between ourselves, I myself keep a toasting fork in the billiard parlour. <laughs> Get out of my sight, you filthy hound! <laughs> Well, your next object seems to show your professorial side. What have we got? Uh, well, these are books. Yes? Yes. So, well, um, I brought these, I suppose, because they are what symbolises the writing process for me as opposed to the performing process. I have one of these open beside me as I work at my computer or for a large part at the beginning of the process. Just the more I can work longhand in a notebook, the better. I have one notebook for each project, which is great, both for being able to know that all your notes are in one place and, and you always find them use the exact same kind of notebook i do and I, you know writers have sort of little i i there's no need to but i i it's like using the same don't. one and i also like and this is both trivial and actually maybe quite useful i like the way they stack up on a shelf over yeah. time it feels like you are building something that yeah i can look back and say there's a, a whole row of what i did that year um will they be archived in a university when you're <laughs> what in your university? <laughs> would want uh, a collection of sketchbooks. Well, you were a member of the Cambridge Footlights, and do you think Footlights is still at the heart of a lot of British comedy? Certainly there are plenty of people coming up for Footlights still going on to great success. What it is not is an old boys' club, and I'm sure there were, in fact, I know that there were times in, in history when it was the case that you rolled out of Cambridge and uh, someone you knew at the BBC said, uh, oh, good, it's your turn for a series, old chap. Um, <laughs> I really don't think that's the case now, though I suppose I would say that. But what it does is it makes you write it's a, and perform, and it gives you an invaluable opportunity to get rid of all the rubbish that you have to... Every writer, every comedian, almost every... You know, unless you're Peter Cook, you have to spend some time being terrible. So you could turn up with a new piece you'd written, audition with it, perform it in front of an audience see it bomb, go away, try and work out, see someone else do a bit better, uh, go away, try and work out what you did wrong and they did right and come back with something else. And it also introduced me to other people who, not in the sense of who then gave me a leg up through uh, the rest of my career, but who also enjoyed comedy and who I could, and who made me think that this was not a ridiculous thing to want to do. A like-minded tribe. Absolutely, and who, you know, inspired ideas in each other and took shows up to Edinburgh and generally made you feel like this was 
a, well, it's certainly a stupid thing to want to do with your life, but it's not an impossible thing. I think it's a fantastic thing. And I'd like to return to Cabin Pressure and mm. play a final clip that quickly gained cult status. John, can you briefly set up what we're about to hear? Yes. So the two pilots have fallen out in this episode. So the older Lucia, first officer, played by Roger Allen, has been slighted by something the young chippy captain, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, has done and is making him suffer. The first thing he did earlier in the episode was introduce the captain to the cabin as a French pilot, and so Martin was forced to do a French accent, and now they've more or less made up, but uh, Douglas decides that Martin hasn't quite suffered enough and makes this PA announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, First Officer Richardson again. As you know, here at Unbeaten Track, it's our pleasure to provide you with a short talk or anecdote. One of the crew with particular knowledge of the region. In this case, I'd like to invite Captain Ducref to share with you the enthralling story of how he once encountered a polar bear in the wild and outwitted it, armed only with, if I recall correctly... An egg whisk and a pogo stick. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, your captain. Hello. Well, I don't like to talk about this. But you've agreed to now. We're most honoured. So, when did it happen? Uh, when I was in the French Foreign Legion. The regiment famous for being non-Frenchmen. Yes. For me, they made the exception, because I am not entirely French. In fact, I'm half English, more than half, actually. So anyway, we, we were stationed in Alaska. Unusual for a desert regiment. Yes, it was unusual. We wanted to have the element of surprise. Anyway, I saw a polar bear, so I called out to my comrades. What did you call out? Look out, a polar bear. <laughs> Only you said it in French. Of course I said it in French then. But I did not say it in French now because no one would understand me. But uh, just out of interest, what is polar bear in French? It is, in fact, the same as in English. Really? Polar bear? Yes, it is a word we have borrowed from your language. <laughs> Only, of course, we say bear polar. I see. So you saw the polar bear, you called out, Attention, mes amis, regardez-vous le bear polar. And then what? Then I put the egg whisk into the snowdrift, whisked it up like a blizzard in the bear's face, then under cover of his confusion, I bounced away on the pogo stick. Thank you, goodbye. <laughs> and Le Bear Polar has since featured on jumpers, socks, mugs, all sorts. Benedict Cumberbatch, who knew that he would become such an enormous star and yet stay loyal to your radio programme? Yes, absolutely. He was clearly always going to go on to great things, but we didn't know that he'd go on to them almost immediately. So, Because he, he started doing uh, Cabin Pressure before Sherlock, and Sherlock, I think, happened between the second and third series, and 
Yeah, the change in the demographic of the audience was uh, was, was noticeable when we turned up for the yeah when I turned up for the Christmas special after the second series and you know a Radio Four audience generally are probably about evenly split gender wise but mostly over fifty mm-hmm. and uh, I turned up and there were a queue of girls in their teens and twenties round the block absolutely literally round the corner of, at the drill hall where we record them and of course because they're free tickets the BBC ticket unit very sensibly give away more then there are seats because yeah. people often don't turn up. Mm-hmm. And they all turned up for this, and they so people do. were turned away and there were people crying in the street. <laughs> Looking ahead, what do you have coming up? I am doing another series of uh, Souvenir Programme, the sketch show, and another series of double acts. So uh, we've done six of those and we've got six more to come next year. And yeah, so that's six hours of radio I need to write between now and Christmas. So all the while, John, continuing to channel your inner eight-year-old, please... Carry on procrastinating, winning awards and keeping us all laughing. Thank you very, very much. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And Double Axe, John Finnamore's souvenir programme and Cabin Pressure are all available to download now on iTunes and Audible. Spike Milligan's war memoirs are an original and subversive first-hand account of the Second World War as well as a hilarious and fascinating portrait of the early years of one of the greatest comedians the world has ever known. A letter from my mother gives dire warning of the coming shortage of underwear in England. You would be wise to stock up now, son, she urges. It's already started here. Neighbours have stopped hanging out their underwear, and your father sleeps in his underwear for safety. Obeying my mother's warning, I bought, stole, cajoled a mass of underwear from a series of holes in a waistband to heavily patched beer-stained transparent long johns. From the medical board I received my you-are-now-officially-downgraded papers. I was still glad to see on the certificate that I had hernia nil, varicose veins nil. A draw! I also noted that I had no gynecological disorders. I wrote and told my mother I was B2. She wrote back, Your father and I are so proud. None of our family have ever had the B2 before. The War Memoirs by Spike Milligan is available now on iTunes and Audible.